This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. I am pleased to be joined by two professors from the Witz Global Change Institute, Professor Bob Scholes and Professor Francois Engelbrecht, who join us on the show to elaborate on the looming threat of the second wave of COVID-19 in South Africa. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on the COVID report. Let's get straight into it. There has been a significant drop in infections over the last few months, and it seemed like we were doing something right. In your opinions, what and where have we gone wrong? So, you know, I think that at this stage in the pandemic, and particularly looking at other countries who thought that they were through the difficulties and so relaxed their guard and have had second or even third waves, a great deal of caution and vigilance, both at the national level and at the personal level, is called for. Having said that, I think that the South African situation is in fact a little different from the more publicized parts of, let's say, Europe and North America. And their reasons uh, have less to do with our brilliance in how we managed this whole episode. I think we did some things well. We had a very firm lockdown early on, but we did some things quite badly that as individual members of the public, uh, many of us, you know, completely ignored all the regulations and uh, there's been a great deal of spread of the disease as a result. But as a consequence of that, it is that, in fact, um, the uh, main body of the infection has already passed through the susceptible populations in the major urban areas of South Africa. And thus, our second wave, if it is indeed a wave, will be more like a bump uh, than a great big all-engulfing wave, because the people who are going to get this disease may already have had it. Over to you, Francois. Yes, thank you, Bob. I concur with that view. Let me point out that the modeling that has been performed at the Global Change Institute here at WITS indicate that we have reached a form of community resistance to the continued spread of the virus here in South Africa. Now, this has become quite a controversial topic internationally. It's often being referred to as herd immunity. And we should, of course, be very careful when we talk about this concept because we are not encouraging at all um, reckless behavior in South Africa. We should still continue to maintain to the fullest extent that we can social distancing and all the other forms of non-pharmaceutical control we've been applying here in our own country. But indeed, it does seem as we've reached a threshold in South Africa in terms of the number of people that have been infected or that possibly have had some form of pre-existing immunity to the virus. Now, as a consequence of that, for as long as a significant portion of the South African population retained that immunity, the formation of a second wave of infections is unlikely. So with that, I mean a wave that has the same amplitude, so the same number of people being infected simultaneously as back in June and July this year. That type of second wave is unlikely in the remaining part of 2020 to develop. 
within this context, I should then also just point out one important reservation. There are communities in South Africa that probably have not been infected to a large extent by COVID as yet. We can think, for example, of some rural communities. In the Northern Cape, there is evidence that COVID only reached these communities a month or two later than, say, in the big cities. So should a city dweller at this point in time, for example, visit family in a town or in a rural community where the virus has not yet spread, one can still see a great number of cases developing in such a community because within the community itself, there's not yet this community resistance. But overall, if we look at South Africa's largest cities and most of the population, there's definitely evidence of community resistance to the virus existing at this point in time. So, Professor Engelbert, I'll stay with you for my next question. Latching on to what we have just covered as far as what your research dictated to the two of you, as far as the severity of the second wave of the COVID-19 virus hitting the South Africa, not being as intense as the first wave of the virus. When it comes to this theory that has always flown around about COVID-19 being lesser in impact in the summer months than it is in the winter. I mean, I poke a hole in that theory by saying it was summer in America when all of this took off. Look at the state of affairs in that country as we speak when it comes to COVID-19 numbers. So when it comes to this theory, Professor Engelbrecht, of COVID-19 being less impactful in the summer months than it's winter versus the spike in infections we're currently seeing, what is the reason for this spike of infections? Does it possibly lend itself to being motivated by the lapse of uh, safety regulations and safety measures that South African citizens are taking, or are there other factors that need to be considered? Okay, you are right on the money by asking this question. So you have just asked a question that is extremely important in terms of thinking and working out whether there may be a second wave of infections in South Africa, not in this year, and Professor Scholes and myself both think that's unlikely. But what about next year? As we move from our summer months into autumn and then into winter. Now, the involvement of the Global Change Institute in COVID-19 modeling, in fact, can be, in fact, originated from us trying to answer that question. What is the impact of seasonality on COVID-19 infection rates? So what is the potential role of weather systems, very low temperatures in winter, as opposed to, say, very humid and hot conditions in summer. Now, I think we've learned a lot about this question the last few months, not only in our own country, but also internationally. The first important lesson we've learned is that as long as a large portion of the population is susceptible, and that was the case when COVID-19 started to spread across the planet, most people did not have immunity to the virus. Under those type of conditions, it doesn't really matter whether whether it is winter or whether it's summer. And we've seen violent outbreaks of the disease across the planet. It happened even in tropical countries with warm and humid climates, such as Brazil. It happened, as you've just pointed out, right in the middle of the North American summer in some of the states with with warm and humid climates 
such as Florida. So it is very clear that when we are in the pandemic phase of the disease and so many people are susceptible, that we can not contain the virus through the effects of climate. Now, the basic theory is that in general, for the coronaviruses that we know much better than COVID-19, so the, the type of viruses that bring the common cold to humans, for these types of viruses and also for the flu virus, there's a lot of evidence that their spread is contained to some extent in summer and that their transmission is favored during the winter months. There are two main theories for why this is the case. The first is that, of course, simply because of human behavior, because of the fact that we tend to clutter together in buildings and in our houses as soon as it is cold, it creates more ideal conditions for the virus to spread from one person to the next. That's probably why we have such a clear influenza season across the world, also in terms of cold. The second factor that probably contributes to this seasonality with so many of the viruses that we know well is because these types of viruses can probably stay for longer in the air when the air is dry and when it is cold. As soon as we move into the summer months with higher temperatures and high humidity, there's evidence that the virus becomes less stable so it can it remains um, in the air in a, in a state in which it can infect humans for shorter periods of time. And then secondly, high water vapor also results in the virus being gravitated out of the air towards the surface um, by the water droplets. So it is not, of course, entirely clear why we have this clear seasonality for so many other of the cold viruses and the flu virus. But um, these two main mechanisms I've just described, that those are probably the reasons for this behavior. And it is very likely that COVID-19 will behave in the same way. Very detailed breakdown. Thank you so much for that, Professor Engelbrecht. Now to you, Professor Scholes, I pose the following question. Apart from people being a lot more relaxed with following the necessary COVID-19 protocols and everything else that could possibly have factored into the rise of infections that we've seen. In your opinion, how much space can be given to consider the possibility that contact tracing hasn't been effective or the model being currently used for contact tracing has contributed to the rise in infections? Can you talk me through how much space there is for that to be considered in this conversation? So I think in the context of South Africa, uh, contact tracing has not been an effective intervention, partly because, you know, the mode of transmission that we've had in South Africa is community transmission. In other words, you don't really know who you were exposed to or when you can't pin it down to a specific event in general, which would then allow those people to be traced, even if it were possible in our context to do the kind of, you know, IT intensive uh, tracking that is possible uh, you know, in, in, in more developed countries. So, you know, I think that it was a good idea uh, to, to think about contract tracing at certain stages in this uh, epidemic. 
um, but it's unlikely to be a very powerful um, mechanism for intervention going forward. You know, the increase that we've seen in the last uh, few weeks of uh, COVID cases um, is, is relatively modest. It's not a giant spike yet. So despite what Professor Engelbrecht and I previously uh, said, that the, in our opinion, um, that, the, that the second wave will not be anywhere near as big as the first wave, it does not mean that we can't see what we might uh, refer to as a, a slow burn of, uh, of, of increasing cases. And because the South African population is not homogeneous, it consists of subpopulations which may be homogeneous, connected, you know, in some way to other populations. We will see, you know, surges in particular places, uh, despite our earlier uh, considerations. And if that a surge like that, you know, can clearly be linked to a single event, a, a you know, a small wedding or a a family get-together, it might be possible to do contact tracing. But the problem with contact tracing is that the numbers involved very rapidly turn into factorially huge numbers. So let's imagine that you went to just an ordinary South African funeral or wedding. Now, there might have been 200 people there. Those 200 people have subsequently each bumped into 10 or 20 people. You know, immediately you're actually having to trace thousands of people, and that's where the whole system breaks down. Indeed. Now, I'd like to stay with you, Mr. Scholes, because you just alluded to it now. The, what, what, what you've described in the, rec- in the reports and articles you've submitted as a slow burn as far as this reported and rumored second wave of COVID-19 infections, could you please elaborate on what you mean by slow burn and how this slow burn would manifest itself as a second wave of the virus? So even if our hypothesis is correct, and I would emphasize that it's a hypothesis, a suggestion, it's not proven um, that enough of the South African population has been already infected or has some level of pre-existing cross-immunity that the disease cannot um, sustain a pandemic level of outbreak. Okay, uh, technically speaking, that means that something called the basic reproduction rate uh, has dropped below one. So for every infection, the follow-on infections are, are less than one. Um, despite that occurring, there are still a large fraction of the population who hasn't had COVID. Um, maybe 40% or more has neither this inherent um, uh, immunity or an acquired immunity. And 40% of the population of South Africa is, you know, something like 25 million people. So there are 25 million people out there who can still get the disease. It just means that the disease doesn't run away from us. Um, and so that's what we mean by a slow burn. You can still catch COVID and it still can have very nasty outcomes, including death. You know, so don't uh, suddenly relax and say, oh, you know, the, the good professors told us there's nothing to worry about. Uh, we can carry on. We have to uh, keep that basic reproduction rate low amongst other things, because it will be still at least another six months, probably more, before we have uh, uh, vaccines available. 
great segue to my next question. And I'd like to throw this one to you, Professor Engelbrecht. Um, can you take me through your observations of the vaccine trials? that conducted by Wits University. And in keeping with the conversation about vaccine trials, recognizing the need for biomedical intervention to minimize the effects of the coronavirus, how far are we? It will be a reality by early or mid next year? Unfortunately, not a specialist in this specific field you are asking me about, but I, I would like to share a perspective. And that is, I would firstly like to express a few thoughts and ideas about when people may firstly lose their immunity after having been infected by COVID-19. So I would first just like to build on Professor Skull's previous set of statements. Um, right now, I, I fully agree that what we are seeing in South Africa right now is the so-called slow burn. So gradually the virus still moves through the remaining portion of the population that remains susceptible. But it is far less difficult now for the virus to find its next victim than it was back in July. Um, because, because of the fact that so many people are now immune to COVID-19. But for how long will that immunity last? That is an absolutely critical question. Now, the, for the what is known as the commonly circulating human coronaviruses that, that cause the common cold, um, immunity is estimated to last for more or less one year. And if we make the assumption that the same is going to be true for COVID-19, so immunity will last roughly, say, eight months to 12 months before it is lost, maybe a little bit longer. If we make that some assumption and we place that in our COVID model developed here at the Institute, then we do find that what may be called the second wave of infections developed somewhere between autumn and winter of 2021. So this hypothesis Professor Scholes has described that we have recently formulated in a, in a paper currently in review um, holds for as long as people do not lose their COVID-19-induced immunity. Um, for as long as this significant portion of the population remains immune, a second wave is unlikely. But as soon as that wave is, as soon as that immunity is lost, a second wave becomes far more likely. Now, looking at our own modeling, but also in terms of some of the papers that have been published internationally, if immunity is lost within a period of roughly one year, and if that occurs in combination with winter setting in, and assuming that there is indeed also these important impacts of low temperatures and low humidity favoring COVID-19 infection rates, then a second wave in autumn to winter of 2021 is certainly on the cards. Now, in the worst cases that I've seen in the papers published to date, such a wave can be about one-third of the size of our 2020 wave. Now, that is still absolutely significant. And that is an important aspect that South Africans will have to guard against moving into autumn and winter of 2021. 
Of course, along the way, every day, we need to remain as careful as we can, as Professor Scholes have already emphasized. Um, from what I am understand about the international quest to find viable vaccines, my understanding is that such vaccines may well become available early in 2021, but distributing these across the planet and also widely in our own country, that is going to take several more months. Um, so this is not my field of speciality, but I would be, I think realistically, we cannot count on having a vaccine widely distributed in the South African population somewhere before the second half of next year. And that may even be an optimistic view. Indeed. And while we still mull over the proposed vaccine finally hitting South African shores, we have the small matter of our festive season approaching here in South Africa. And townships are among the most highly densely populated areas in the country. And it's next to impossible to achieve social distancing in largely overcrowded places, certainly in many pockets of the townships of this country. I'd like to shoot this question to the both of you. Professor Scholes, I'd like you to talk us through the ways in which you see townships playing a role in, um, or, or rather, what, what, la what, what role will these populators areas, as well as the lack of observing lockdown regulations, play in the possibility of us seeing the second wave of infections? And for you, Professor Engelbrecht, what preventative measures do you believe can be put in place now or as early as possible to help mitigate the, if the, the, the effects of a dreaded second wave as we approach closer and closer to the festive season here in South Africa? So I think that you used the operative phrase there, that it is next to impossible uh, to impose controls under our socioeconomic circumstances, uh, especially at a time such as Christmas, where uh, people go home, they meet with their families, they have parties, and double especially since um, there is a level of coronavirus fatigue, which has settled in in South Africa. So the population was much more obedient in um, March and April of next year, but has become progressively less, uh, you know, uh, uh, willing to uh, undertake strong uh, actions in isolation. When you add that to the kind of socioeconomic circumstances of dense housing and the necessity to share things like taxis in order to get to work and you have to work to eat, I think that we are um, fighting a losing battle um, if we get to, uh, you know, approach this problem um, by a series of enforced regulations. I, I don't think that will work. So we have to be a bit cleverer about it. We have to continue uh, to do to get people to do things which really don't interfere with their enjoyment of each other or the Christmas season. So, you know. Thoughtful spacing, uh, the wearing of masks, the washing of hands, all of those things actually do help. They might not prevent a, uh, a second uh, surge, uh, but they will certainly reduce its output. We also need to make sure that our medical system uh, stays geared for an increase in cases. 
bearing in mind that over this Christmas period, they will also have a surge, as they always do, in drink-related incidents and driving-related incidents. So they have to factor that into account. But also, you know, the medical establishment has not been idle over the past um, six months. They have learned a huge amount, both in terms of how do we treat cases of COVID, but also how do we manage the logistics of the, the situation. And so with that knowledge in their, in their minds, I think uh, that despite the almost inevitable small or not so small increase in COVID cases over the next two months, that our medical system uh, will weather the storm. And all I would like to add to all the important points Prof Scholes have already mentioned, has already mentioned, is that we should take special care of the elderly in our communities. So this festive season, if you are going to see your grandparents, whether they will stay with you or whether they always stay with you in your family or whether they are in an old age home, um, we need to take special care of the elderly because they are so vulnerable to the impacts of this disease. And the same is true for people living with comorbidities in South Africa. So if you have families that you know are especially vulnerable to the potential impacts of COVID-19, of, of COVID then that is where we must make a special effort to make sure that those family members and friends we, we have are not getting infected. I, I fully agree with Prof Scholes. In South Africa, given our social and economic circumstances, it's simply not possible for us to maintain the type of social distancing we would have loved to apply. That is why we had this devastating first wave of infections in South Africa during our winter months. It was just not possible for us to maintain social distancing once we had to start to reduce our level of lockdown for economic reasons. And the same will be true this December. It is not going to be possible for us to maintain the type of social, social distancing we really need to prevent these slow burn infections from taking place. But maybe in many families, we can make a special effort to protect our elderly fam family members from the disease this festive season. I'd like to latch on to something you just mentioned, Professor Engelbrecht, the elderly and the senior citizens in our communities, in our families, and this question of immunity to the virus, how does it play out for them? And how does this inform the amount, the extra amount of precaution we have to take in taking care of them and making sure that they aren't exposed to the virus? So perhaps I can uh, address that question. You know, it really depends uh, on what the nature of this, what we are suggesting is a, a pre-existing level of uh, immunity in the community was. If it came out of, for instance, previous vaccination campaigns for related viruses, or if it came out from our long experience of a high viral load in South Africa, then it's reasonable to expect that our elderly may also have that degree of cross-immunity. If it's predominantly because of having caught COVID in the current pandemic, 
then largely they will not have been exposed because we've been quite careful about shielding them, for instance, in old age homes or just within families, and therefore they remain highly vulnerable. So we don't know the answer to that. So the best thing to do is just to be cautious. You know, older members of our community need just as much as the rest of us, perhaps even more than the rest of us, human contact. They feel terribly isolated if you shut them away and don't let them participate in family uh, get-togethers. But we do need to be respectful of the fact that their um, mortality rate after exposure to COVID is many, many times higher than that, for instance, of young students. And so we should protect them with masks. We should keep them some distance away from us. We shouldn't be all over them hugging and kissing them all the time. Those are the sorts of things that we can do. Indeed. And I think finally from me, and I'd like the two of you to take turns addressing this question. As far as the unprecedented nature of the pandemic, the way it hit us in South Africa, the way it hit every other part of the world, the way in which no one saw this coming, no one was fully and adequately prepared for a storm of this magnitude to visit us. As we continue to trudge along to the end of the year 2020, and we venture on into the year 2021, keeping in mind that COVID-19 is still going to be part of our lives, especially uh, for the rest of this year and much of the year to come, the year 2021. In what ways do you believe we as South Africa can arm and better ourselves to respond to this virus and to continue upholding these safety measures um, as, the, as we continue to move towards uh, 2020 and beyond, the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021, and as we continue going on, I'm curious as to what lessons we may have learned from an infrastructure standpoint, a medical infrastructure standpoint, a, an economic standpoint, and I'm aware the two of you might not necessarily be the most well-versed to speak on what lessons this pandemic may have taught us economically speaking, but I'm curious as to what lessons we can take away from our experience dealing with this pandemic for 2020 into the year 2021 and as we continue dealing with the pandemic. So the first point to make is that this pandemic was neither unprecedented nor unpredicted. We've, in the history of human civilizations, repeatedly experienced pandemics. The Spanish flu one of 1920 was every bit as dangerous and widespread as this one. We have simply forgotten about those lessons. The second point is that many, many people over the past decades have been saying we are going to get a pandemic. They couldn't possibly predict it would be uh, SARS-CoV-2, which originated in Wuhan on the 6th of December of 2019. That's beyond our predictive abilities. But it was absolutely clear that we were going to sooner or later get a pandemic and that that pandemic would have characteristics um, that were different from those of previous uh, pandemics because of the high connectivity of our modern world, because of our globalized world where things can spread around the world within hours. 
So we, the main lesson that we need to take out away from this is that we will have another one. And if it's not a pandemic, it will be another crisis, a climate crisis or a financial crisis. And the issue is not so much, you know, never being exposed to such uh, crises. That's almost impossible. But to develop your resilience. In other words, how do you bounce back from those crises? So how do you not get stuck in a, a deep hole? And those lessons are really uh, the critical ones. It's around preparedness. It's around responsiveness. It's around making sure that the core things that we hold to be important are not lost in the process. For example, if we hold our freedoms uh, to be important, we need to make sure that our response is not one which is driven by uh, police and military kind of methods. Um, if our capacity to respond is deeply embedded in our uh, the strength of our education system, we need to make sure that our education system remains strong, et cetera, et cetera. Those are some very um, encouraging and uplifting points. I, am, I think I'll add two perspectives. The first is purely from an epidemiological modeling perspective and the science perspective behind COVID-19 spread in South Africa. I think the main thing South Africa should keep its eye on moving into 2021 is our own research and the international research effort in terms of how long does COVID-19 immunity last? That's a critical question for us, as I've alluded to earlier in our discussion today. Um, because if people will lose that immunity more or less one year, after being infected, then in combination with the plausible effects of winter enhancing infection rates next year from autumn onwards, then there is the possibility of a significant second wave in South Africa um, somewhere between autumn and the winter of 2021. It, it really depends to a large extent on how long the COVID-19 immunity lasts. And then secondly, a very positive aspect for me from um, the perspective of a climate scientist working in South Africa is that once again, our government's response to the crisis was based on science. So although aspects of our country's lockdown and some of the, what I may call the micro measures that were taken were heavily criticized, probably with good reason. So um, overall, our government is one that listens carefully to the advice from scientists. And overall, the messaging coming from our government in terms of how to react to COVID-19, to practice social distancing, um, encouraging the nation to um, obey that initially very strict lockdown. All that messaging was quite consistent and it was informed by science. And when South Africa eventually had to start to relax the lockdown levels and the virus started to spread so fast in our country, um, we only relaxed those levels of lockdown when we really had no other choice because of socioeconomic pressure. Now, there are many other countries in the world. I, I won't mention names today, but we, I think we are all aware of the fact that there are other countries in the world where the messaging was not so consistent. 
and we had advice from scientists in how to contain this disease in its early stages at least was unfortunately not taken seriously and as a consequence it can probably be said that many more people in some countries got infected and eventually died because of the correct advice not being supplied by certain governments in a consistent way we didn't have that in south africa and we we see the same in terms of south africans policy south africa's policy when it comes to climate change and the battle against global warming that government uh, that policy is largely informed by science i think it was largely the same for covid-19 and that's a very big positive We've just been joined by Professors Bob Scholes and Francois Engelbrecht from the Witz Global Change Institute, joining us to talk on the COVID report about the looming threat of the second wave of COVID-19 and whether or not, A, we are set to face this second wave and B, whether or not we'll be prepared to face the second wave. Naturally, this is a topic of discussion that is uh, very prevalent among public discourse. And as such, we went out again to chat to regular South Africans like you and I to find out what they felt about the potential of a second wave of COVID-19 and whether or not that has forced them to change their alleged relaxation of safety protocols. This is what they had to say. I think every day it's becoming obvious for a second wave is inevitable. People are not wearing masks, people are not sanitizing, people are going out to parties, people are hugging people. I might be guilty of that. Like, but you know, you haven't seen people in a while, so I think maybe there's this thing, yeah, COVID fatigue, you know, like sanitizing all the time, keeping a social distance. We wanna connect. Rebatu, you know, that's how we live. So I, I am fearful that we will have a second wave. Although I was also thinking, Hore, we've been doing the way we, you know, we've been here for a while now. So we've been behaving the way we're behaving from lockdown level three, where people were free and doing what they needed to do. So I'm also kind of like thinking maybe we are safe. Um, but also I think the worry that I get is the fact that maybe there's some studies that are being done where they, you know, researchers are finding out whether COVID is a kind of sickness that's most prevalent in cold weathers and winter. So if that's the case, then maybe we will get our second wave when we approach the winter of 2021. You know, and maybe the COVID pandemic might be coming back stronger than it might be. It might be COVID 20 and not COVID 19 as we are seeing now. But again, I'm human. I'm hoping for the best. I definitely don't want us to have a second wave. I can't imagine us going back to the hard lockdown that we've had, like what the United Kingdom is doing right now in some countries in Europe. I feel sorry for them. Um, I don't want us to go into that position as a country, but I'm also enjoying the kind of freedom that people are having because we're living our lives. Um, it's not normal for us to live the way we were living under complete lockdown like we had in lockdown level one. But I think we should still take some precaution, wear our mask, wash our hands, keep a social distance and just still elbow people instead of hugging people. I'll try and keep this top of mind. Mm, so, yes, the fear is, the, is there, but there's also hope that things will get better and 
can only get better. We cannot go back to where this pandemic got us. So if we are responsible, we can avoid the second wave. Well, there is a chance, but it won't be the same as the first one because the first one, it was, we never knew that there's a COVID thing. We just know how the COVID came and we were supposed to lock down and everything. But in the second wave, the lockdown won't be the same as the first one because now people aren't dead scared of COVID-19 anymore. We are we are learning to live with it as, as much as it's hard, people losing their jobs and everything that comes with uh, the COVID-19 thingies. But in all honesty, Jay, the second wave, if the second wave comes, the lockdown restrictions are gonna be are gonna be like much lighter than the first one. Um I personally feel like there will be a second wave to um COVID nineteen because literally people are going on as if everything is back to normal that we're living without the virus, you know, they don't wear their masks, they go to parties where like there is no form of social distancing implemented. Um there are negligence and careless. Um, ever since lockdown, restrictions have been eased. Um, so I think there will be a second wave of COVID-19. Um, and I think um, the lockdown restrictions could we could go back to a hard lockdown, um, seeing that it's also being done in England, if I'm not mistaken, um, that they're they preventing a surge in the second wave. And I think that like, we could go back to a hard lockdown, which obviously is not good for our economy. Um, but it's it's necessary to contain the curb or the spread of the virus. We just heard from a few South Africans like you and I who were sharing about how they have been affected by this pandemic and whether or not they are wary of the potential looming threat of a second wave of the pandemic. We also heard from Professors Bob Scholes and Francois Engelbrecht from the Witz Global Change Institute to chat to us about the potential second wave of COVID-19 and whether we are prepared for it. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vits. By Voice of Vits. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1, 88.1. or streams via www.varfm.co.za.